CD8. Eventually, Nanny Og gave up and came out from behind her rock. It's salt pork, understand, said Howell sharply. Take it or leave it, OK? Now, which way's Lankra? Keep on left at the ravine, then you pick up the track that leads to a bridge. You can't miss it, said Nanny promptly. Howell grabbed the reins. You forgot about the locks. Bagger, sorry, locks. And you're a humble old wood gatherer, I expect, Howell went on. Spot on, lad, said Nanny cheerfully. Just about to make a start, as a matter of fact. Tom John nudged the dwarf. You forgot about the river, he said. Howell glared at him. Oh, yes, he muttered. And you can wait here while we go and find a river. To help you across, said Tom John carefully. Nanny Og gave him a bright smile. There's a perfectly good bridge, she said. But I wouldn't say no to a lift. Move over. To Howell's irritation, Nanny Og hitched up her skirts and scrambled onto the board, inserting herself between Tom John and the dwarf and then twisting like an oyster knife until she occupied half the seat. You mentioned salt pork, she said. There wouldn't be any mustard, would there? No, said Howell sullenly. Can't abide salt pork without condiments, said Nanny conversationally, but pass it over anyway. Wimslow wordlessly handed over the basket holding the troop supper. Nanny lifted the lid and gave it a critical assessment. That cheese in there's a bit off, she said. Needs eating up quick. What's in the leather bottle? Beer, said Tom John, a fraction of a second before Howell had the presence of mind to say, Walter. Pretty weak stuff, said Nanny eventually. She fumbled in her apron pocket for her tobacco pouch. Has anyone got a light? she inquired. A couple of actors produced bundles of matches. Nanny nodded and put the pouch away. Good, she said. Now, has anyone got any tobacco? Half an hour later, the lattes rolled over the Lankra Bridge, across some of the outlying farmlands and through the forest that made up most of the kingdom. This is it, said Tom John. Well, not all of it, said Nanny who had been expecting rather more enthusiasm. There's lots more of it behind the mountains over there, but this is the flat bit. You call this flat? Flattish, Nanny conceded, but the air's good. That's the palace up there, offering outstanding views of the surrounding countryside. You mean forests? You'll like it here, said Nanny encouragingly. It was a bit small. Nanny thought about this. She'd spent nearly all her life inside the boundaries of Lankra. It had always seemed about the right size to her. Bijou, she said. Handy for everywhere. Everywhere where? Nanny gave up. Everywhere close, she said. Howell said nothing. The air was good. Rolling down the unclimbable slopes of the ram tops like a sinus wash, tinted with turpentine from the high forests. 
they passed through a gateway into what was, up here, probably called a town. The cosmopolitan he had become decided that, down on the plains, it would just about have qualified as an open space. There's an inn, said Tom John doubtfully. Howell followed his gaze. Yes, he said eventually. Yes, it probably is. When are we going to do the play? I don't know. I think we just send up to the castle and say we're here. Howell scratched his chin. Fool said the king, or whatever, would want to see the script. Tom John looked around Lancre Town. It seemed peaceful enough. It didn't look like the kind of place likely to turn actors out at nightfall. It needed the population. This is the capital city of the kingdom, said Nanny Og. Well-designed streets, you'll notice. Streets, said Tom John. Street, corrected Nanny. Also, houses in quite good repair. Stones throw from river. Throw? Drop, Nanny conceded. Neat middens, look, and extensive. Madam, we've come to entertain the town, not buy it, said Howell. Nanny Og looked sidelong at Tom John. Just wanted you to see how attractive it is, she said. Your civic pride does you credit, said Howell. And now please leave the cart. I'm sure you've got some wood together, Lorks. Much obliged for the snack, said Nanny, climbing down. Meals corrected Howell. Tom John nudged him. You ought to be more polite, he said. You never know, he turned to Nanny. Thank you, good... Oh, she's gone. They've come to do a theatre, said Nanny. Granny Weatherwax carried on shelling beans in the sun, much to Nanny's annoyance. Well, aren't you going to say something? I've been finding out things, she said, picking up information, not sitting around making soup. Stew. I reckon it's very important, sniffed Nanny. What kind of a theatre? They didn't say. Something for the Duke, I think. What's he want a theatre for? They didn't say that either. It's probably all a trick to get in the castle. Granny said knowingly. Very clever idea. Did you see anything in the carts? Boxes and bundles and such. They'll be full of armour and weapons, depend upon it. Nanny Og looked doubtful. They didn't look very much like soldiers to me. They were awfully young and spotty. Clever. I expect in the middle of the play the king will manifest his destiny. Right where everyone can see him. Good plan. There's another thing, said Nanny, picking up a bean pod and chewing it. He doesn't seem to like the place much. Of course he does. It's in his blood. I brought him the pretty way. He doesn't seem very impressed. Granny hesitated. He was probably suspicious of you, she concluded. He was probably too overcome to speak, really. 
She put down the bowl of beans and looked thoughtfully at the trees. Have you got any family still working up at the castle? She said. Cheryl and Daff help out in the kitchen since the cook went off his head. Good. I'll have a word with Magrat. I think we should see this theatre. Perfect, said the Duke. Thank you, said Howell. You've got it exactly spot on about that dreadful accident, said the Duke. You might almost have been there. <laughs> you weren't, were you? said Lady Felmet, leaning forward and glaring at the dwarf. I just used my imagination, said Howell hurriedly. The Duchess glared at him, suggesting that his imagination could consider itself lucky it wasn't being dragged off to the courtyard to explain itself to four angry wild horses and a length of chain. Exactly right, said the Duke, leafing one-handedly through the pages. This is exactly, exactly, exactly how it was. Will have been, snapped the Duchess. The Duke turned another page. You're in this too, he said. Amazing. It's word for word how I'm going to remember it. I see you've got death in it too. Always popular, said Howell. People expect it. How soon can you act it? Stage it, corrected Howell, and added, We've tried it out. As soon as you like. And then we can get away from here, he said to himself. Away from your eyes like two raw eggs, and this female mountain in the red dress, and this castle which seems to act like a magnet for the wind. This is not going to go down as one of my best plays, I know that much. How much did you say we were going to pay you? said the Duchess. I think you mentioned another hundred silver pieces said Howell. Worth every penny, said the Duke. Howell left hurriedly before the Duchess could start to bargain, but he felt he'd gladly pay something to be out of this place. Bijou, he thought. Gods, how could anyone like a kingdom like this? The fool waited in the meadow with the lake. He stared wistfully at the sky and wondered where the hell Magrat was. This was, she said, their place. The fact that a few dozen cows also shared it at the moment didn't appear to make any difference. She turned up in a green dress and a filthy temper. What's all this about a play? she said. The fool sagged onto a willow log. Aren't you glad to see me? he said. Well, yes, of course. Now, this play. My lord wants something to convince people that he is the rightful king of Lancre. Himself, mostly, I think. Is that why you went to the city? Yes. It's disgusting. The fool sat calmly. Would you prefer the Duchess's approach? He said. She thinks they ought to kill everyone. She's good at that sort of thing. And then there'd be fighting and everything. Lots of people would die anyway. This way might be easier. Oh, where's your spunk, man? Pardon? Don't you want to die nobly for a just cause? I'd much rather live quietly for one. 
right for you witches. You can do what you like, but I'm circumscribed, said the fool. Magrat sat down beside him. Find out all about this play, Granny had ordered. Go and talk to that jingling friend of yours. She'd replied, he's very loyal. He might not tell me anything. And Granny had said, this is no time for half measures. If you have to, seduct him. When's this play going to be, then? She said, moving closer. Mary, I'm not sure I'm allowed to tell you, said the fool. The duke said to me, he said, don't tell the witches that it's tomorrow night. I shouldn't then, agreed Magrat. At eight o'clock. I see. But meet me for a sherry beforehand at 7.30 of faith. I expect you shouldn't tell me who is invited either, said Magrat. That's right. Most of the dignitaries of Lancre. You understand I'm not telling you this. That's right, said Magrat. But I think you have a right to know what it is you're not being told. Good point. Is there still that little gate around the back that leads to the kitchens? The one that is often left unguarded? Yes. Oh, we hardly ever guard it these days. Do you think there might be someone guarding it around eight o'clock tomorrow? Well, I might be there. Good. The fool pushed away the wet nose of an inquisitive cow. The duke will be expecting you, he added. You said he said we weren't to know. He said I mustn't tell you, but he also said they'll come anyway. I hope they do. Strange, really. He seemed to be in a very good mood when he said it. Um, can I see you after the show? Is that all he said? Oh, there was something about showing witches their future. I didn't understand it. I really would like to see you after the show. You know I bought... I think I might be washing my hair, said McGrath vaguely. Excuse me, I really ought to be going. Yes, but I brought you this pres... said the fool vaguely, watching her departing figure. He sagged as she disappeared between the trees and looked down at the necklace wound tightly between his nervous fingers. It was, he had to admit, terribly tasteless, but it was the sort of thing she liked, all silver and skulls. It had cost him too much. A cow, misled by his horns, stuck its tongue in his ear. It was true, the fool thought. Witches did do unpleasant things to people, sometimes. Tomorrow night came, and the witches went by a roundabout route to the castle with considerable reluctance. If he wants us to be here, I don't want to go, said Granny. He's got some plan. He's using headology on us. There's something up, said McGrath. He had his men set fire to three cottages in our village last night. He always does that when he's in a good mood. That new sergeant is a quick man with the matches, too. Ah, Daff said she saw them actors practice in this morning, said Nanny Og, who was carrying a bag of walnuts and a leather bottle from which rose a rich, sharp smell. She said it was all shouting and stabbing and then wondering who'd done it and long bits with people muttering to themselves in loud voices. Actors, 
said Granny witheringly. As if the world weren't full of enough history without inventing more. They shout so loud, too, said Nanny. You can hardly hear yourself talk. She was also carrying, deep in her apron pocket, a lump of haunted castle rock. The king was getting in free. Granny nodded, but she thought it was going to be worth it. She hadn't got the faintest idea what Tom John had in mind, but her inbuilt sense of drama assured her that the boy would be bound to do something important. She wondered if he would leap off the stage and stab the duke to death, and realised that she was hoping like hell that he would. All hell, what's name? she said under her breath. Who shall be king here, after? Let's get a move on, said Nanny. All the sherry'll be gone. The fool was waiting despondently inside the little wicket gate. His face brightened when he saw McGrat, and then froze in an expression of polite surprise when he saw the other two. There's not going to be any trouble, is there? he said. I don't want there to be any trouble, please. I'm sure I don't know what you mean, said Granny regally, sweeping past. Watch your jingle bells, said Nanny, elbowing the man in the ribs. I hope you haven't been keeping our girl here up later nights. Nanny, said McGrath, shocked. The fool gave the terrified, ingratiating rictus of young men everywhere when confronted by importunate elderly women commenting on their intimately personal lives. The older witches brushed past. The fool grabbed McGrath's hand. I know where we can get a good view, he said. She hesitated. It's all right, said the fool urgently. You'll be perfectly safe with me. Yes, I will, won't I? said McGrath, trying to look around him to see where the others had gone. They're staging the play outside in the big courtyard. We'll get a lovely view from one of the gate towers, and no one else will be up there. I put some wine up there for us and everything. When she still looked half reluctant, he added, And there's a cistern of water and a fireplace that the guards use sometimes, in case you want to wash your hair. The castle was full of people standing around in that polite, sheepish way affected by people who see each other all day and are now seeing each other again in unusual social circumstances, like an office party. The witches passed quite unremarked among them and found seats in the rows of benches in the main courtyard, set up before a hastily assembled stage. Nanny Og waved her bag of walnuts at Granny. Want one? she said. An older man of Lancre shuffled past her and pointed politely to the seat on her left. Is anyone sitting here? he said. Yes, said Nanny. The alderman looked distractedly at the rest of the benches, which were filling up fast, and then down at the clearly empty space in front of him. He hitched up his robes with a determined expression. I think that since the play is commencing to start, your friends must find a seat elsewhere when they arrive, he said, and sat down. Within seconds, his face went white. His teeth began to chatter. He clutched at his stomach and groaned. The observant will realise that this was because the king was already seated there. It was not because the man had used the phrase, commence to start in cold blood, but it ought to have been. I told you, 
said Nanny, as he lurched away. What's the good of asking if you're not going to listen? She leaned towards the empty seat. Walnut? No, thank you, said King Varence, waving a spectral hand. They go right through me, you know. Pray, gentles all, list to our tale. What's this? hissed Granny. Who's the fellow in the tights? He's the prologue, said Nanny. You have to have him at the beginning so everyone knows what the play's about. Can't understand a word of it, muttered Granny. What's a gentle, anyway? Type a maggot, said Nanny. That's nice, isn't it? Hello, maggots, welcome to the show. Puts people in a nice frame of mind, doesn't it? There was a chorus of shhs. These walnuts are damn tough, said Nanny, spitting one out into her hand. I'm going to have to take my shoe off to this one. Granny subsided into an unaccustomed, troubled silence and tried to listen to the prologue. The theatre worried her. It had a magic of its own, one that didn't belong to her, one that wasn't in her control. It changed the world and said things were otherwise than they were. And it was worse than that. It was magic that didn't belong to magical people. It was commanded by ordinary people who didn't know the rules. They altered the world because it sounded better. The Duke and Duchess were sitting on their thrones right in front of the stage. As Granny glared at them, the Duke half turned and she saw his smile. I want the world the way it is, she thought. I want the past the way it was. The past used to be a lot better than it is now. And the band struck up. Howell peered around a pillar and signaled to Wimslow and Bratsley, who hobbled out into the glare of the torches. Old man, an elder. What hath befell the land? Old woman, a crone. Tis a terror! The dwarf watched them for a few seconds from the wings, his lips moving soundlessly. Then he scuttled back to the guardroom, where the rest of the cast were still in the last hasty stages of dressing. He uttered the stage manager's traditional scream of rage. Come on, he ordered. Soldiers of the night at the double, and the witches. Where are the blasted witches? Three junior apprentices presented themselves. I've lost my wart. The cauldron's all full of yuck. There's something living in this wig. Calm down, calm down, screamed Howell. It'll be all right on the night. This is the night, Howell. Howell snatched a handful of putty from the makeup table and slammed on a wart like an orange. The offending straw wig was rammed on its owner's head, livestock and all, and the cauldron was very briefly inspected and pronounced full of just the right sort of yuck. Nothing wrong with yuck like that. On stage, a guard dropped his shield, bent down to pick it up and dropped his spear. Howell rolled his eyes and offered up a silent prayer to any gods that might be watching. It was already going wrong. The earlier rehearsals had had their little teething troubles, it was true, but Howell had known one or two monumental horrors in his time, and this one was shaping up to be the worst. The company was more jittery than a potful of lobsters. Out of the corner of his ear, he heard the onstage dialogue falter and scurry to the wings. Avenge the terror of my father's death, 
he hissed, and hurried back to the trembling witches. He groaned. Divers' alarums. This lock was supposed to be terrorising a kingdom. He had about a minute before the queue. Right, he said, pulling himself together. Now, what are you? You're evil hags, right? Yes, Hull, they said meekly. Tell me what you are, he commanded. We're evil hags, Howell. Louder! We're evil hags! Howell stalked the length of the quaking line, then turned abruptly on his heel. And what are you going to do? The second witch scratched his crawling wig. We're going to curse people, he ventured. It says in the script, I can't hear you! We're going to curse people, they chorused springing to attention and staring straight ahead to avoid his gaze. Howell stumped back along the line. What are you? We're hags, Howell. What kind of hags? We're black and midnight hags, they yelled, getting into the spirit. What kind of black and midnight hags? Evil black and midnight hags. Are you scheming? Yeah. Are you secret? Yeah. Howell drew himself to his full height, such as it was, what are you? he screamed. We're scheming evil secret black and midnight hags. Right. He pointed a vibrating finger towards the stage and lowered his voice. And at that moment, a dramatic inspiration dived through the atmosphere and slammed into his creative node, causing him to say, Now, I want you to get out there and give them hell. Not for me, not for the goddamn captain. He shifted the butt of an imaginary cigar from one side of his mouth to the other and pushed back a non-existent tin helmet and rasped. For Corporal Wazowski and his little dog. They stared at him in disbelief. On cue, someone shook a sheet of tin and broke the spell. Howell rolled his eyes. He'd grown up in the mountains where thunderstorms stalked from peak to peak on legs of lightning. He remembered thunderstorms that left mountains a different shape and flattened whole forests. Somehow, a sheet of tin wasn't the same, no matter how enthusiastically it was shaken. Just once, he thought, just once, let me get it right just once. He opened his eyes and glared at the witches. What are you hanging around for? he yelled. Get out there and curse them! He watched them scamper onto the stage, and then Tom John tapped him on the head. Howell, there's no crown. Hmm? said the dwarf, his mind wrestling with ways of building thunder and lightning machines. There's no crown, Howell. I've got to wear a crown. Of course there's a crown. The big one with the red glass. Very impressive. We used it in that place with the big square. I think we left it there. There was another tinny roll of thunder, but even so, the part of Howell that was living the play heard a faltering voice on stage. He darted to the wings. I have smothered many a babe, he hissed and sprinted back. Well, just find another one then, he said vaguely, in the props box. You're the evil king, you've got to have a crown. Get on with it, lad. You're on in a few minutes, improvise. Tom John wandered back to the box. He'd grown up among crowns, big golden crowns made of wood and plaster, studded with finest glass. He'd cut his teeth on the hat brims of authority, but most of them had been left in the disc now. 
He pulled out collapsible daggers and skulls and vases, the strata of the years, and right at the bottom, his fingers closed on something thin and crown-shaped, which no one had ever wanted to wear because it looked so uncrownly. It would be nice to say it tingled under his hand. Perhaps it did. Granny was sitting as still as a statue and almost as cold. The horror of realisation was stealing over her. That's us, she said, round that silly cauldron. That's meant to be us, Gaither. Nanny Og paused with a walnut halfway to her gums. She listened to the words. I never shipwrecked anybody, she said. They just said they shipwrecked people. I never did. Up in the tower, Magrat elbowed the fool in the ribs. Green blusher, she said, staring at the third witch. I don't look like that. I don't, do I? Absolutely not, said the fool. And that hair! The fool peered through the crenellations like an over-eager gargoyle. It looks like straw, he said. Not very clean, either. He hesitated, picking at the lichen stonework with his fingers. Before he'd left the city, he'd asked Howell for a few suitable words to say to a young lady, and he'd been memorising them on the way home. It was now or never. I'd like to know if I could compare you to a summer's day. Because, well, June 12th was quite nice, and... Oh, you've gone. King Varence gripped the edge of his seat. His fingers went right through it. Tom John had strutted onto the stage. That's him, isn't it? That's my son. The uncracked walnut fell from Nanny Og's fingers and rolled onto the floor. She nodded. Berentz turned a haggard, transparent face towards her. But what is he doing? What is he saying? Nanny shook her head. The king listened with his mouth open as Tom John, lurching crabwise across the stage, launched into his major speech. I think he's meant to be you, said Nanny distantly. But I never walked like that. Why has he got a hump on his back? What's happened to his leg? He listened some more and added in horrified tones, And I certainly never did that. Or that. Why is he saying I did that? The look he gave Nanny was full of pleading, she shrugged. The king reached up, lifted off his spectral crown and examined it. And it's my crown he's wearing. Look, this is it. And he's saying I did all those. He paused for a moment to listen to the last couplet and added, All right, maybe I did that. So I set fire to a few cottages, but everyone does that. It's good for the building industry anyway. He put the ghostly crown back on his head. Why is he saying all this about me? He pleaded. It's art, said Nanny. It's, what's name? Holds a mirror up to life. 
Granny turned slowly in her seat to look at the audience. They were staring at the performance, their faces rapt. The words washed over them in the breathless air. This was real. This was more real even than reality. This was history. It might not be true, but that had nothing to do with it. Granny had never had much time for words. They were so insubstantial. Now she wished that she had found the time. Words were indeed insubstantial. They were as soft as water, but they were also as powerful as water, and now they were rushing over the audience, eroding the levees of veracity and carrying away the past. That's us down there, she thought. Everyone knows who we really are. But the things down there are what they'll remember. Three gibbering old baggages in pointy hats. All we've ever done, all we've ever been, won't exist anymore. She looked at the ghost of the king. Well, he'd been no worse than any other king. Oh, he might burn down the odd cottage every now and again in a sort of absent-minded way, but only when he was really angry about something, and he could give it up any time he liked. Where he wounded the world, he left the kind of wounds that healed. Whoever wrote this theatre knew about the uses of magic. Even I believe what's happening, and I know there's no truth in it. This is art holding a mirror up to life. That's why everything is exactly the wrong way round. We've lost. There is nothing we can do against this without becoming exactly what we aren't. Nanny Og gave her a violent nudge in the ribs. Did you hear that? she said. One of them said we put babbies in the cauldron. They've done a slander on me. I'm not sitting here and have them say we put babbies in the cauldron. Granny grabbed her shawl as she tried to stand up. Don't do anything, she hissed. It'll only make things worse. Ditch delivered by a drab, they said. That'll be the young Millie Hipwood who didn't dare tell her mum and then went out gathering firewood. I was up all night with that one, Nanny muttered. Fine girl, she produced. It's a slander. What's a drab? she added. Words, said Granny half to herself. That's all that's left. Words. And now there's a man with a trumpet come on. What's he gonna do? Oh, end of act one, said Nanny. The words won't be forgotten, thought Granny. They've got a power to them. They're damn good words, as words go. There was yet another rattle of thunder, which ended with the kind of crash made, for example, by a sheet of tin escaping from someone's hands and hitting the wall. In the world outside the stage, the heat pressed down like a pillow squeezing the very life out of the air. Granny saw a footman bend down to the Duke's ear. No, he won't stop the play, of course he won't. He wants it to run its course. The Duke must have felt the heat of her gaze on the back of his neck. He turned, focused on her, and gave her a strange little smile. Then he nudged his wife. They both laughed. Granny Weatherwax was often angry. She considered it one of her strong points. Genuine anger was one of the world's great creative forces, but you had to learn how to control it. That didn't mean you let it trickle away. 
It meant you damned it, carefully. Let it develop a working head. Let it drown whole valleys of the mind, and then, just when the whole structure was about to collapse, open a tiny pipeline at the base and let the iron-hard stream of wrath power the turbines of revenge. She felt the land below her, even through several feet of foundations, flagstones, one thickness of leather and two thicknesses of sock. She felt it waiting. She heard the king say, My own flesh and blood? Why has he done this to me? I'm going to confront him. She gently took Nanny Og's hand. Come, Gaither, she said. Lord Felmet sat back in his throne and beamed madly at the world, which was looking good right at the moment. Things were working out better than he had dared to hope. He could feel the past melting behind him, like ice in the spring thaw. On an impulse, he called the footman back. Call the captain of the guard, he said, and tell him to find the witches and arrest them. The Duchess snorted. Remember what happened last time, foolish man? We left two of them loose, said the Duke. This time, all three. The tide of public feeling is on our side. That sort of thing affects witches. Depend upon it. The Duchess cracked her knuckles to indicate her view of public opinion. You must admit, my treasure, that the experiment seems to be working. It would appear so. Very well. Don't just stand there, man. Before the play ends, tell him. Those witches are to be under lock and key. Death adjusted his cardboard skull in front of the mirror, twitched his cowl into a suitable shape, stood back, and considered the general effect. It was going to be his first speaking part. He wanted to get it right. Cower now, brief mortals, he said. For I am death, against whom no... 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 How... Against whom no? Oh, good grief, Daffy. Against whom no lock will hold nor fasten portal bar. I really don't see why you have difficulty with... Not that way up, you idiots! Howell strode off through the backstage melee in pursuit of a pair of importunate scene shifters. Right, said Death. To no one in particular, he turned back to the mirror. Against whom no tumpty-tum nor tumpty-tumpty bar, he said uncertainly, and flourished his scythe. The end fell off. Do you think I'm fearsome enough? he said, as he tried to fix it on again. Tom John, who was sitting on his hump and trying to drink some tea, gave him an encouraging nod. No problem, my friend, he said. Compared to a visit from you, even death himself would hold no fears. But you could try a bit more hollowness. How do you mean? Tom John put down his cup. Shadows seemed to move across his face. His eyes sank. His lips drew back from his teeth. His skin stretched and paled. 
I have come to get you, you terrible actor, he intoned, each syllable falling into place like a coffin lid. His features sprang back into shape. Like that, he said. Daffy, who had flattened himself against the wall, relaxed a bit and gave a nervous giggle. <laughs> God, I don't know how you do it, he said. Honestly, I'll never be as good as you. There really isn't anything to it. Now run along. Howell's fit to be tied as it is. Daffy gave him a look of gratitude and ran off to help with the scene shifting. Tom John sipped his tea uneasily. The backstage noises whirring around him like so much fog. He was worried. Howell had said that everything about the play was fine except for the play itself. And Tom John kept thinking that the play itself was trying to force itself into a different shape. His mind had been hearing other words, just too faint for hearing. It was almost like eavesdropping on a conversation. He had to shout more to drown out the buzzing in his head. This wasn't right. Once a play was written, it was, well, written. It shouldn't come alive and start twisting itself around. No wonder everyone needed prompting all the time. The play was writhing under their hands, trying to change itself. Ye gods, he'd be glad to get out of this spooky castle and away from this mad duke. He glanced around, decided that it would be some time before the next act was called, and wandered aimlessly in search of fresher air. A door yielded to his touch, and he stepped out onto the battlements. He pushed it shut behind him cutting off the sounds of the stage and replacing them by a velvet hush. There was a livid sunset imprisoned behind bars of cloud, but the air was as still as a mill pond and as hot as a furnace. In the forest below, some night birds screamed. He walked to the other end of the battlements and peered down into the sheer depths of the gorge. Far beneath, the lancra boiled in its eternal mists. He turned and walked into a draught of such icy coldness that he gasped. Unusual breezes plucked at his clothing. There was a strange muttering in his ear, as though someone was trying to talk to him, but couldn't get the speed right. He stood rigid for a moment, getting his breath, and then fled for the door. But we're not witches! Why'd you look like them, then? Tie their hands, lads. Yes, excuse me, but we're not really witches. The captain of the guard looked from face to face. His gaze took in their pointy hats, the disordered hair smelling of damp haystacks, the sickly green complexions, and the herd of warts. Guard captain for the Duke wasn't a job that offered long-term prospects for those who used initiative. Three witches had been called for, and these seemed to fit the bill. The captain never went to the theatre. When he was on the rack of adolescence, he had been badly frightened by a Punch and Judy show, and since then he had taken pains to avoid any organised entertainment and had kept away from anywhere where crocodiles could conceivably be expected. He'd spent the last hour enjoying a quiet drink in the guardroom. I said tar their hands, didn't I? He snapped. Shall we gag him as well, Captain? But if you just listen, we're with the theatre. Yes, said the captain, shuddering. 
gag them. Please? The captain leaned down and stared at three pairs of frightened eyes. He was trembling. That, he said, is the last time you'll eat anyone's sausage. He was aware that now the soldiers were giving him odd looks as well. He coughed and pulled himself together. Very well then, my theatrical witches, he said. You've done your show, and now it's time for your applause. He nodded to his men. Clap them in chains, he said. Three other witches sat in the gloom behind the stage, staring vacantly into the darkness. Granny Weatherwax had picked up a copy of the script, which she peered at from time to time, as if seeking ideas. Divers' alarums and excursions, she read uncertainly. That means lots of terrible happenings, said McGrath. You always put that in plays. Alarums and what? said Nanny Og, who hadn't been listening. Excursions, said McGrath patiently. Oh, Nanny Og brightened a bit. The seaside would be nice, she said. Do shut up, Gaither, said Granny Weatherwax. They're not for you. They're only for divers, like it says. Probably so they can recover from all them alarums. We can't let this happen, said McGrath quickly and loudly. If this gets about, witches'll always be old hags with green blusher. And meddling in the affairs of kings, said Nanny, which we never do, as is well known. It's not the meddling I object to, said Granny Weatherwax, her chin on her hand. It's the evil meddling. And the unkindness to animals, muttered McGrath. All that stuff about the eye of dog and ear of toad. No one uses that kind of stuff. Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og carefully avoided one another's faces. Drab, said Nanny Og bitterly. Witches just aren't like that, said McGrath. We live in harmony with the great cycles of nature and do no harm to anyone, and it's wicked of them to say we don't. We ought to fill their bones with hot lead. The other two looked at her with a certain amount of surprised admiration. She blushed, although not greenly, and looked at her knees. Goody Wemper did a recipe, she confessed. It's quite easy. What you do is, you get some lead and you... I don't think that would be appropriate, said Granny carefully, after a certain amount of internal struggle. It could give people the wrong idea. But not for long, said Nanny, wistfully. No, we can't be having with that sort of thing, said Granny, a little more firmly this time. We'd never hear the last of it. Why don't we just change the words, said McGrath. When they come back on stage, we could just put the fluence on them so they forget what they're saying and give them some new words. I suppose you're an expert at theatre words, said Granny sarcastically. They'd have to be the proper sort, otherwise people would suspect. Shouldn't be too difficult, said Nanny Og dismissively. I've been studying it. You go tumpty, tumpty, tumpty. Granny gave this some consideration. There's more to it than that, I believe, she said. 
Some of those speeches were very good. I couldn't understand hardly any of it. There's no trick to it at all, Nanny Og insisted. Anyway, half of them are forgetting their lines as it is. It'll be easy. We could put words in their mouths, said McGrath. Nanny Og nodded. I don't know about new words, she said, but we could make them forget these words. They both looked at Granny Weatherwax. She shrugged. I suppose it's worth a try, she conceded. Witches as yet unborn will thank us for it, said McGrath ardently. Oh, good, said Granny. At last! What are you three playing at? We've been looking for you everywhere. The witches turned to see an irate dwarf trying to loom over them. Us? said McGrath. But we're not in... Oh, yes, you are. Remember, we put you in last week, Act Two, downstage around the cauldron. You haven't got to say anything. You're symbolising occult forces at work. Just be as wicked as you can. Come on, there's good lads. We've done well so far. Howell slapped McGrath on the bottom. Good complexion you got there, Wilf, he said encouragingly. But for goodness sake, use a bit more padding. You're still the wrong shape. Fine warts there, Billum, I must say, he added, standing back. You look as nasty a bunch of hags as a body might hope to clap eyes on. Well done. Shame about the wigs. Now to run along. Curtain up in one minute. Break a leg. He gave McGrat another ringing slap on her rump, slightly hurting his hand, and hurried off to shout at someone else. None of the witches dared to speak. McGrat and Nanny Og found themselves instinctively turning toward Granny. She sniffed. She looked up. She looked around. She looked at the brightly lit stage behind her. She brought her hands together with a clap that echoed round the castle and then rubbed them together. Useful, she said grimly. Let's do the show right here. Nanny squinted sullenly after Howell. Break your own leg, she muttered. Howell stood in the wings and gave the signal for the curtain and for the thunder. It didn't come. Thunder! He hissed in a voice heard by half the audience. Get on with it! A voice from behind the nearest pillar wailed. I went and bent the thunder, Howell. It just goes clonk, clonk. Howell stood silent for a moment, counting. The company watched him, awestruck, but not, unfortunately, thunderstruck. At last, he raised his fists to the open sky and said, I wanted a storm, just a storm, not even a big storm, any storm. Now, I want to make myself absolutely clear. I've had enough. I want thunder right now. A stab of lightning that answered him turned the multi-hued shadows of the castle into blinding white and searing black. It was followed by a roll of thunder, on cue. It was the loudest noise Howell had ever heard. It seemed to start inside his head and work its way outwards. It went on and on, shaking every stone in the castle. Dust rained down. 
A distant turret broke away with balletic slowness and, tumbling end over end, dropped gently into the hungry depths of the gorge. When it finished, it left a silence that rang like a bell. Howell looked up at the sky. Great black clouds were blowing across the castle, blotting out the stars. The storm was back. It had spent ages learning its craft. It had spent years lurking in distant valleys. It had practised for hours in front of a glacier. It had studied the great storms of the past. It had honed its art to perfection. And now, tonight, with what it could see was clearly an appreciative audience waiting for it, it was going to take them by, well, tempest. Howell smiled. Perhaps the gods did listen, after all. He wished he'd asked for a really good wind machine as well. He gestured frantically at Tom John. Get on with it! The boy nodded and launched into his main speech. And now our domination is complete. Behind him on the stage, the witches bent over the cauldron. It's just tin, this one, hissed Nanny. And it's full of all yuck. And the fire is just red paper, whispered Magrat. It looks so real from up there. It's just red paper. Look, you can poke it. Never mind, said Granny. Just look busy and wait until I say. As the evil king and the good duke began the exchange that was going to lead to the exciting duel scene, they became uncomfortably aware of activity behind them and occasional chuckles from the audience. After a totally inappropriate burst of laughter, Tom John risked a sideways glance. One of the witches was taking their fire to bits. Another one was trying to clean the cauldron. The third one was sitting with her arms folded, glaring at him. The very soul cries out at tyranny, said Wimslow and then caught the expression on Tom John's face and followed his gaze. His voice trailed into silence. And calls me forth for vengeance, prompted Tom John helpfully. <coughs> whispered Wimslow, trying to point surreptitiously with his dagger. I wouldn't be seen dead with a cauldron like this, said Nanny Og, in a whisper loud enough to carry to the back of the courtyard. Two days' work with a scourer and a bucket of sand, is this? And calls me forth for vengeance, hissed Tom John. Out of the tail of his eye, he saw Howl in the wings, frozen in an attitude of incoherent rage. How do they make it flicker, said Magrat. Be quiet, you two. You're upsetting people. She raised her hat to Wimslow. Go ahead, young man, don't mind us. What? said Wimslow. Aha! It calls you forth for vengeance, does it? said Tom John in desperation. And the heavens cry revenge too, I expect. On cue, the storm produced a thunderbolt that blew the top off another tower. The Duke crouched in his seat, his face a panorama of fear. He extended what once had been a finger. There they are, he breathed. That's them. What are they doing in my play? Who said they could be in my play? 
The Duchess, who was less inclined to deal in rhetorical questions, beckoned to the nearest guard. On stage, Tom John was sweating under the load of the script. Wimslow was incoherent. Now Gumridge, who was playing the part of the good Duchess in a wig of flax, had lost the thread as well. Aha! Thou callst me an evil king! Though thou whisperest it so, none save I may hear it, Tom John croaked. And thou hast summoned the guard, possibly by some secret signal owing naught to artifice of lips or tongue. A guard came on crabwise, still stumbling from Howell's shove. He stared at Granny Weatherwax. Howell says, what the hell's going on? He hissed. What was that? said Tom John. Did I hear you say, I come, my lady? Get these people off, he says. Tom John advanced to the front of the stage. Thou babblest, man. See how I dodge thou tortoise spear. I said, see how I dodge thy tortoise spear. Thy spear, man, you're holding it in thy bloody hand, for goodness sake. The guard gave him a desperate frozen grin. Tom John hesitated. Three other actors around him were staring fixedly at the witches. Looming up in front of him, with all the inevitability of a tax demand, was a sword fight during which, it was beginning to appear, he would have to parry his own wild thrusts and stab himself to death. He turned to the three witches, his mouth open. For the first time in his life, his awesome memory let him down. He could think of nothing to say. Granny Weatherwax stood up. She advanced to the edge of the stage. The audience held its breath. She held up a hand. Ghosts of the mind and all device away. I bid the truth to have... She hesitated. It's tumpty-tumpty-day. Tom John felt the chill engulf him. The others, too, jolted into life. Up from out of the depths of their blank minds, new words rushed. Words red with blood and revenge. Words that had echoed among the castle stones. Words stored in silicone. Words that would have themselves heard. Words that gripped their mouth so tightly that an attempt not to say them would result in a broken jaw. Do you fear him now? said Gumridge. And he so mazed with drink? Take his dagger, husband. You are a blade's width from the kingdom. I dare not, Wimslow said, trying to look in astonishment at his own lips. Who will know? Gumridge waved a hand towards the audience. He'd never act so well again. See, there's only eyeless night. Take the dagger now. Take the kingdom tomorrow. Have a stab at it, man. Wimslow's hand shook. I have it, wife, he said. Is this a dagger I see before me? Of course it's a bloody dagger. Come on, do it now. The weak deserve no mercy. We'll say he fell down the stairs. But people will suspect. Are there no dungeons? Are there no pillywinks? Possession is nine parts of the lore, husband. When what you possess is a knife. Wimslow drew his arm back. I cannot. He has been kindness itself to me. 
and you can be death itself to him. Daffy could hear the voices a long way off. He adjusted his mask, checked the deathliness of his appearance in the mirror, and peered at the script in the empty backstage gloom. Cower no, brief mortals, he said. I am death. Gainst who? Gainst who? Whom? Oh, thanks, said the boy distractedly. Gainst whom no lock may hold. Will hold, nor fastened portal bar. Here, to... 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 Here to take my tally on this night of kings. Duffy sagged. You're so much better at it, he moaned. You've got the right voice and you can remember the words. He turned around. It's only three lines and how will... Have my guts... He froze. His eyes widened and became two saucers of fear as death snapped his fingers in front of the boy's rigid face. Forget, he commanded, and turned and stalked silently towards the wings. His eyeless skull took in the line of costumes, the waxy debris of the makeup table. His empty nostrils snuffed up the mixed smells of mothballs, grease and sweat. There was something here, he thought, that nearly belonged to the gods. Humans had built a world inside the world, which reflected it in pretty much the same way as a drop of water reflects the landscape. And yet, and yet, inside this little world, they had taken pains to put all the things you might think they would want to escape from. Hatred, fear, tyranny and so forth. Death was intrigued. They thought they wanted to be taken out of themselves. And every art humans dreamt up took them further in. He was fascinated. He was here for a very particular and precise purpose. There was a soul to be claimed. There was no time for inconsequentialities. But what was time, after all? His feet did an involuntary little clicking dance across the stones. Alone in the grey shadows, death tap-danced. The next night in your dressing room, they hang a star. He pulled himself together, adjusted his scythe, and waited silently for his cue. He'd never missed one yet. He was going to get out there and slay them. And you can be death itself to him. Now! Death entered, his feet clicking across the stage. Cower now, brief mortals, for I am death, gainst whom no... Uh, no... gainst whom... He hesitated. He hesitated for the very first time in the eternity of his existence. For although the death of the Discworld was used to dealing with people by the million, at the same time, every death was intimate and personal. Death was seldom seen except by those of an occult persuasion and his clients themselves. The reason that no one else saw him 
was that the human brain is clever enough to edit sights too horrible for it to cope with. But the problem here was that several hundred people were in fact expecting to see death at this point and were therefore seeing him. Death turned slowly and stared back at the hundreds of watching eyes. Even in the grip of the truth, Tom John recognised a fellow actor in distress and fought for mastery of his lips. Lock will hold, he whispered, through teeth fixed in a grimace. Death gave him a manic grin of stage fright. What? He whispered, in a voice like an anvil being hit with a small lead hammer. Lock will hold your fastened portal, said Tom John encouragingly. Lock will hold nor fastened portal. Ah, uh... repeated Death, desperately watching his lips. Bah! Bah! No, I cannot do it, said Wimslow. I will be seen. Down there in the hall, someone watches. There is no one. I feel the stare. Dithering idiot, must I put in for you? See, his foot is upon the top stair. Wimslow's face contorted with fear and uncertainty. He drew back his hand. No! End of CD 8